we go through all of Scripture and we point to this time when Jesus comes and ultimately when it heads to the cross. And so when we think about who Jesus is and we think about our relationship to him, it's so easy to think in terms of uh, the Savior who saved us, the one who took away our sins, the one who gives us hope every day. But I think sometimes we forget that we have been drafted. We've been drafted into his, his core of disciples. His final words to us as he headed soon to heaven was he says to his disciples at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. I mean, that was his final word. For us here at Bethany, it's very easy for us to identify with this because it's been the mission of Bethany International, Bethany Fellowship, Bethany Church, Bethany Missionary Church in years past. It's been our mission for, for all of our existence to be part of making Jesus known in all the world. And so this final set of instructions to Jesus, to us, makes a lot of sense. But Jesus, in the miracles that we got to see and hear about, from the beginning, as he began to do those miracles, he had his eyes open. And he was looking for people who followed him in a unique way. Because there were obviously crowds who followed Jesus. But he had his eye open because he had an end destination. He knew he'd be leaving this earth. And so he began to call his disciples. In Mark 1, verses 14 through 20, we read a section here that just speaks of Jesus calling some of his first disciples. Let me read it to you. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were at their boat mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So I, I, I had not tracked the progress of Jesus calling the disciples so closely, but a few months ago I began reading a book on multiplication of disciples and discovered something that Jesus did not call his disciples the first day he came on the scene. In fact, it was probably a year into his ministry before he actually literally called disciples. And during all that time, there are many, many people, obviously, who are following him. There are many people who are interested in what he's doing, what he's saying, everything else. In fact, it's in John 3 that we read about John the Baptist saying, I must decrease, he must increase. 
So that there was an overlap between Jesus' ministry and the end of John's ministry. So we read at the beginning of this passage that uh, John had already been put in prison. He had been arrested by this time. And so we see a number of people beginning to come to him. So this is kind of the first recorded moment when he begins to call his disciples. So we know there was an inner circle of about 12 disciples. There were some, obviously, that we, as we go on, we find out there was even an inner circle of three. But there were 12. But in Luke 9, we can read about how Jesus gave authority or power to the 12, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom. And they, they were to heal, and they were to deliver, and they were to do the works of the kingdom. But then the next chapter in Luke 10 we read about him sending out the 70. So there had to be more than 12 following Jesus around very closely. And so the 70 go out and they're sent to go into all the towns and villages where Jesus was going to go. And so there was this conscious relationship of Jesus, not just to the masses, but to a few that were really following him closely. Of course, in John 6, we read the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And of, co of course, at that point, they talk about that being 5,000 men. And then there were families, spouses, and children in there as well. So was this 10,000 people? But a phenomenal miracle comes. And they all say, this is amazing. And uh, later on, as you read that chapter, um, some of those crowds come back later the next day and they want more. In fact, many of them wanted to make him king. And they, uh, they wanted to actually, it says, take him by force to make him king. I wonder how that would have gone. Uh, so at that point, Jesus, they're believing that he might be the prophet that was talked about in Deuteronomy like Moses. Well, they all knew the story of Moses, that Moses had delivered them from slavery. And so they're thinking, perhaps this is the king that will deliver us the prophet as it's called in, in Deuteronomy, the prophet who would deliver them from Roman rule. Some, it says, wanted to do the works of God. Some of them saw his power, saw what he did, and they wanted to do some of that. They wondered, maybe I could do that if he gave me the right authority. They perhaps had seen his disciples perform miracles. They had perhaps heard the 70 they had perhaps been in some of the towns of villages and had come, but they wanted to see if they could do some works as well. And Jesus points them back. He says, to do the work of God is to believe in me, whom the Father has sent. And through that, believe in the Father. So he pointed them back that the greatest work was to believe in him and to believe in the Father who sent him. And then, of course, there were some who... Uh, wanted more signs and miracles from Jesus. They wanted him to, to show up again and, and provide. I mean, they saw, this is quite the deal. If he can feed us every day, if he can, I mean, it, it would cut down the work of life every day by hours if we could just hang around this guy and he'd feed us every day. Now, how would you like this? Jesus comes to them at that point. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. If you want to have food that will last forever, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
this all got pretty weird at that point. <laughs> and uh, it, 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 he, he, he doesn't, if you read in John 6, he doesn't say that once. He says it like two or three or four times. He repeats this thought. That you're going to have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. And I said at this, many of the disciples turned away and stopped walking with him. Now you think about this, all these crowds, all these people, everybody clamoring to get close to Jesus. And then he, he just cuts at it. And he says, you're going to have to eat my flesh, drink my blood if you want to follow me. And of course, Jesus at that point, I, I imagine the scene was literally that people turned their backs and walked away. And Jesus looks to his disciples. He says, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave me too? And of course, we know what Peter said. Lord, you alone have the words of life. To whom else are we going to go? We believe that you are the Messiah. We believe that you are the Son of God. And we will follow you. So, what is a disciple? You know, what is a disciple? There's a, 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 a quote from Doug Greenwald. I'd like to just read to you. And it says, When Jesus said, Go and make disciples, it was a Jew speaking to other Jews in the Semitic dialect. As such, those words had very specific meaning and embodied a well-known paradigm that first-century Jewish listeners well understood. The essential qualities of a first-century disciple were desire and submission and assume emulation, community, and a willingness and a zeal to give up any and all of their preconceived notions of how to live one's life. They would embrace the behavior of their rabbi deemed best to honor God. It was radical. It was a radical, willing, and totally conforming submission to the interpretive authority of their rabbi. Okay, so there were many rabbis in Israel at this time. And, and they were usually out of some pharisaical uh, scribe, some religious scholar uh, network of people who were the authorities on the law, the authorities on the scriptures, and there would be disciples. They would have disciples follow them. And the, the mindset was that whatever that rabbi says, we will do. We will live that out. And so when Jesus is looking at these men who have said, we will follow you, we believe in you, he is, he is looking at them as people who will fully subscribe to what he's saying and what he believes and what he's teaching. Uh, I, I, I thought it interesting that the Apostle Paul lived in both of those camps. Okay, now, he obviously wasn't one of the original 12, but he became a disciple and Jesus revealed himself to him. But he was a disciple of Gamaliel. Speaks of that in Acts. And he followed that religiously. And of course, we know what Paul did in obedience to Gamaliel's direction. He became a persecutor of the Christians. So he lived in that camp. He knew what the mindset was. And then he comes and he becomes a follower of Jesus and he becomes just as radically committed to Jesus as he had, was committed to Gamaliel. And when we think about that, when Paul speaks in Philippians 2 about what it means to have the mind of Christ, I believe that captures the essence of what the attitude of being a disciple of Jesus is. 
Let me read it to you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, I, I, um, I love this. This passage, I pray, maybe not every day, but almost every day. God, would you, would you fill me with your mind, your attitude, your, your perspective? Would that same humility be in me? Would I not be out here comparing myself and contrasting myself or competing with others in the body? God, help me to just to be here in, very, in, in the NIV, it says, in very nature a servant. Would you do that not so I'm just trying to copy being a servant, but would you put that deep in my heart? Okay, and that is what the discipleship with Jesus is. And so there are several script, uh, passages or words that Jesus gave to the to those who were becoming his disciples. He says, for instance, you must be willing to lose your identity as defined by the world around you and the relationships around you. In Matthew 10, 38 and 39, he says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. I, I remember a time in my life, in Donna's and my walk with the Lord and our journey of life, where he called us away from all of those kinds of relationships that we were very comfortable with and actually moved from where our families had lived and then moved to Colorado. And, and we weren't near all those reflectors of our identity. You know, really what happens to us is our families and this body even becomes the reflectors back of our identity. We look at each other and we see ourselves. Or many times we shape ourselves so that we, uh, we seem to fit better with the group around us. Right? It's very easy to do. I, I was sharing this with somebody at one point about loss and change that was going to take place and they went through the list of relationships and they closed that statement off by saying, I will lose myself. Because they recognized that all of those, I mean, I, it was like a moment of revelation to me to realize that all of those became the mirrors by which we identified ourselves. And Jesus asked us to give that up. Another one is embracing the principle of self-denial and the way of the cross. And he almost uses the same word. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I mean, the very, the very nature, the principle of self-denial would say that I begin to deny myself to follow him. And where is he going? He is going to the cross. And where is he going to ask me to go? To the cross. He's not going to put it off someplace else. He's, he's being upfront about this. If you're going to follow me, you're going to go to the cross. And then the, the last one, that, just of three, self-giving servant-heartedness to the point of laying down our lives. Okay, this is going to the cross. And he says this in Matthew 20. He declared to his disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So while Jesus did not fit the traditional uh, shape of a rabbi, he hadn't gone through the rabbinical schools, he had not earned his stripes in that. In fact, you know, when he begins to step forward, and, I'm saying, he, and he's saying, I'm the fulfillment, they're saying, isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't, isn't his mother the one we know? How can he say he's a rabbi? How can he be doing that? But then his disciples weren't very much like the others either. They were fishermen. They were scoundrels. They were zealots. One of them was a thief. One of them was a tax collector. Jesus wasn't looking for people who looked like they fit the mold of a good disciple. He was looking for something deeper in them. He was looking for something in their hearts. So, I want to just hit a few ideas here um, about what it is for us to be followers of Jesus and how that plays out. So one is that we live as followers and, and, and recognize there's some tensions that get set up when we think about being a disciple of Jesus. So there, are th there are some things that pull on us and I think it's okay to recognize those because when those tensions come, those are battles that we actually fight in our own hearts at times. So one is we live as followers of King Jesus and as citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. Um, over the past year, I, I, I mean, like all of you, uh, I've, I've been reflecting on the times in which we live. Um, obviously, 19 months ago... Or or so after a fairly contentious four years uh, with President Trump in office. There's an election and there's a full, a full turn of the political parties, right? All the way down the line. And then all of that begins to be enacted. And then just a couple months later, COVID breaks out. So everybody is in their homes and has way too much time to think about themselves. And, and so that's going on. And then just a little over a year ago, George Floyd's death here in our city, and then um, protests and literally riots and um, all kinds of demonstration of different kinds all around the country. And, and really, I don't think we want to, nor do we have time to get into all the narratives that have come out of this. But uh, I, there were a few things that kind of stood out to me. And one of them was a statement that was made that if the church had truly, was truly being the church, this wouldn't have happened. Anybody else hear that? I mean, I, I did, so I guess I'm the only one who did hear that. So, um, but, but there was a thought that the church perhaps hasn't, hasn't done its job, that's why we have this kind of thing in our culture. And I'll just say, I don't think that's true. I think, I think we live in a fallen world, and the enemy is at work, and there are lots of things going on that are not... Um, are not uh, something that the church can do. I don't think our call as a church is to build some kind of utopian society. Because I think some people think that's what we ought to be doing. But I don't think that's going to happen. The only way that's going to happen is when Jesus comes back. The second thing that happened that I noticed was a surge, well, a surge in prayer that took place. And I was encouraged to see a surge in prayer. But I, I, I remember back from kind of between, you know, a little before the election to 
somewhere after uh, January 6th or up to the 20th even of, of January when the transition actually took place. Um, there was a massive call to prayer within the church. And I prayed. You know, I prayed that righteousness would come. I prayed that things that are wrong would be exposed. I, I prayed that if that meant an election was reversed, that that would happen. I mean, I, I, I was praying for things like that. I was not happy about where things were going. But I don't think that, I, I don't think the church perhaps caught what the issue really is. The issue is not an election. The issue is not even peace in our society. The issue is the sinfulness of man, the lostness of man, and the fact that the gospel is not yet going to all the world. And our calling is to be really concerned about the kingdom of heaven and people getting into it. Far more than whether the political system is the way I like it. The church all over the world is struggling, is fighting every day. There were years we were working in China with partners and we got to freely go in and out. We can't freely go in and out. And in fact, religious leaders and, and church leaders in China can't go freely around their neighborhoods. Many have ended up in jail again, in prison. You know, I go into Ethiopia a couple years ago with Tim Freeman and we visited persecuted Christians. In their community, homes were burned down. Two, of them saw, uh, two women saw their husbands beheaded. We don't have that happening here. And there are other places in the world where it's worse than that. I mean, what we're just hearing about in India, one thing is the COVID, but the other is the suppression that comes through Hindu, Hindu government and leadership. And a move to actually rename India Hindustan. I mean, some of those kinds of things are going on. So what is our prayer to be? What's to motivate us? You know, what really is a thing that motivates us to get up and pray, to get up and serve and be focused on those issues? I mean, there's a tension that we feel, isn't there? Because if we follow a king who is the, the ruler of a kingdom that is not of this world, and we live in this world, there's a tension, isn't there, going on constantly for us. So Jesus did teach, though, that we were called to be salt and light. So while we don't live, ultimately, we are citizens of heaven, we do live here, and we are called to be salt and light here. We are called to be about our Father's business on this earth. We are not called to do that someplace else. We're not someplace else. We're here. And so this is where we live. And so that tension is there. So how do I do that? How do I live this out? I mean, what's the first phrases of the Lord's Prayer? Glorify your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. But that is not. I think you, uh, heaven is a utopian society. And so if his kingdom and his will is going to become on earth, it is not the utopian part. It's the will of God being lived out by his people. And that more and more people are being brought in to the kingdom and are coming into relationship and life-giving relationship with Jesus. So a thought here. The church 
is to be a gathering of disciples, not just converts. So, the church is not merely a gathering of people saved from hell, even though we are, right? Isn't that a wonderful prospect that hell's not in our future, heaven is? That's a wonderful thing. But that's not the primary um, composition and purpose of the church to just have this, uh, let's come together and celebrate that we are saved from hell. That is not actually what God had in mind. In fact, when Jesus defines in Matthew 16 the ecclesia, the church, he names off a number of purposes. One is that we are going to come against the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not prevail. But sometimes it feels like the gates of hell are prevailing. He says that we are going to have the keys of the kingdom. We're going to have the power of binding and loosing. We are going to be able, when we come together, two or three, when we come together, we're going to be able to ask the Father and he will give it to us. I don't think this is the experience we tend to have. But it's the experience that Jesus intends that we have. And so as disciples, there's something different about this. Um, I, I, I've enjoyed a series of messages, books, by a guy named T. Austin Sparks. And I want to read a quote to you about the church. There is something more than being born again and receiving the life of the Lord. That life is given for a purpose, and that purpose is to bring about this properly governed and coordinated organism, the church, which is his body. The cross is intended to lead to the church that is functioning under the sovereign government or headship of Christ. The church is meant to be a working expression of Christ's life here on earth. It is intended to show what the cross means. The Lord Jesus died that there might be an expression here on the earth of what he is in heaven. The name of the book that this came out of is called The Cross, The Church, and The Conflict. The cross was meant to lead to the church, and the church is, Im- the church is uh, commissioned to move into the conflict. That's why Jesus back, just before he left the earth, said, all authority has been given to me. Because if we do not have the authority of Jesus working through us as a church, we will lose the battle on the front lines. But he said, I'm with you always. That's how he ended it. I'm with you always to the end of the age. So here, here's an example. So here, the unity within us is Bethany Church, or for me at Bethany International. The unity of Bethany International, in agreement with what God has called us to do, who we are to, to be, how we are to live, how we are to work together, the mission that we have in our community and throughout the world, that is a calling of the church to be organized in a sense, this expression of the body of Christ, to be organized to accomplish the mission of Jesus. To make him known in the earth. The only way that works is when we work together around this principle of self-denial and embracing the way of the cross. Because when we do that with each other, when we live that way with each other, when we live that way in our families, when we live that way in our communities, 
When we reach out beyond ourselves into other churches and other expressions of the body of Christ in this area, and we say, okay, how are we going to bring the kingdom of God here? How are we going to bring the gospel here? How are we going to become fishers of men? This agreement gives authority. When we come together, the authority of Jesus is in us, in us among us. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Next is we demonstrate the kingdom of heaven in everyday life, and we fish for people, right? So how did Jesus do this? What kind of came to me in the whole sense of this is that the way Jesus did it is he showed up. At the beginning of the video that we watched, remember he showed up with unclean people and people who were sick and people who needed deliverance and people, he, he shows up in Simon's, uh, Simon's house who's a, a, considered an outcast. He, hi, he, he recruits a Matthew who's a tax collector. And he shows up among people that just don't fit. But he shows up. And when he shows up, he brings the kingdom of heaven into that place. And when you show up and when I show up, we bring the kingdom of heaven. That's, I, I think it's sometimes hard for us to grasp that. But that's really what's happening when we come. So when we live together, we work together. Um, he shows up, we're called to show up. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, I don't know how many have seen the movie Free Burma Rangers. But uh, towards the end of it, uh, Free Burma Rangers is, a, is a, a, a Dave Eubank and his family, and uh, actually some of our family have been involved in that as well, in, out of Chiang Mai, Thailand. But for about 21 years, they served in, in Burma, uh, trying to rescue the Karin people from the Burmese army. So that was kind of the idea. And um, tremendous, tremendous ministry of just serving that. Then, then in 2014, they get called. It's really since the Lord calls them to go to Iraq, to Mosul, just after ISIS had taken over Mosul. I, if you remember, there was a time when, and it's a large city, and so ISIS comes in and takes over. Well, he felt like God was calling him there. And again, it was there for a number of months, and uh, eight or nine months, I think, straight. And... Um, Anyway, God, yeah, God puts them in places where it's, it's death if God doesn't deliver. I mean, it's just that. But he, there's a little interlude here. He's, he's talking to the camera, and he makes a statement. We're really not that good. We're just here. And I love that statement. Because you know what? I don't feel that good. I don't feel like I got enough. I don't think I know enough. And that's the beauty of showing up. Because if God doesn't show up when we show up, we're in trouble. But he promises to be with us always to the end of the age. And, and it doesn't really matter what the outcome is to us. We, when we show up, we bring him into that situation. We show the love of God by showing up. To care, to pray, to serve in Jesus' name. Listen, we know that there's demonically led opposition to the reign of Jesus, to the kingdom of heaven. So I've wrestled with what it means to be a disciple today in our times. 
but with the promise that the Holy Spirit shows up at the front lines. You know, we often pray, I pray, Holy Spirit, come, come, come. And then I don't go anywhere. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is interested where the front line is, where the Holy Spirit is needed. So I, I'm grateful for revelation. I'm grateful for the word. I'm grateful when it comes alive in my heart. But you're saying, really, Dan, I've called you to make a difference, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. You know, one of the other things I wrestle with, it's sometimes easy to, um, to think that because I'm involved in, in a ministry, that I'm being a good disciple. Because sometimes we can kind of, uh, kind of make it like a third-person activity instead of personally living as a disciple. Does that make sense when I say that? Right? Because I'm in a good church that, where everybody loves each other, that I'm being a good disciple. Disciples are called to fish for men, for people, to find them. So I'd like to close with a few ideas, and then we're going to have communion together. Uh, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So let me give you the first one. The first one is, go fishing for people. Okay? Um, I'm no good at fishing for fish. So I hope that by God's help I can be better at fishing for men. But he said, I'll help you. But focus on unreached peoples and places. And, I, and I'm not just saying around the world, but I'm saying in our community. Look for where are there places I can reach where unreached peoples and places are. How can I serve there? How can I find people there? How can I search there? Uh, last week we had the Alpha Course. Who do you know that you'd like to invite to the Alpha Course? How many are praying for the 1102? Okay. Who are the people God is putting on your mind? But if we're going to fish for people, we need to go out and fish for people. Don't just buy the license, buy the pole go out there and fish. Okay? So who do I know? Who could I reach out to? What neighbor do I know? Who's somebody I work with? Is there somebody I can reach out to? But become conscious of that and active in it. The second is to show up by using the authority that God gave you to build up rather than to tear down. Now, I love a passage in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, so now what does that mean? If you follow on the rest of that chapter, I remember asking, God, what, is the, what are these, you know, um, weapons of our warfare? And all Paul talks about after that is loving people, using the authority that God gave you to build people up, not tear them down, to love them. Two, to go to places where somebody else isn't, if you've got a way to get someplace that nobody else is in your community, or go there and use the gift that he gave you. If you've got an ability, serve with that ability. Do something with it. If we do that, God will use us. And I'm not telling you it will be easy. Ask Beth Beebe. Is it easy being on the school board, Beth? No, it's not. It's not easy to go through a search for a new superintendent in a woke world. Okay? It's hard. Beth puts out prayer requests that we 
We would pray for her because there are decisions being made at a school board. That's one way we can stand with her. But there are other places we can serve. And some of those are in public ways. You know, get into the public space. Get into the community space. But show up and God will help you. Beth said she's uh, running again for the school board. She uh, likes hitting her ha hand with a hammer, I, I think is <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> I don't know. So, um, I mean, there are food shelves here in the community. There are election polling places. Some of you are business people. You've got business networks. You can volunteer at things. Each of us has a network. Each of us has a set of relationships where we can serve. We can find an opportunity to serve, to build people up. And I'm telling you this because that seemed to be all that Paul said were the weapons of our warfare, was to show up someplace and make Jesus known by our life. I think he's calling us to do that. Uh, let the worship team come up. And then the third area that I'd like to just encourage you is work together. Do this together with others. Jesus sent his disciples two by two. You don't have to go by yourself. Find somebody else who shares a passion with you and do it with them. Find a way to serve. Find a way to do something like that. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name. So the together part is one. He sends us out by two. Two, when two or three are together, he's with us. There's an agreement and there's a fellowship and there's a presence of his spirit with us. So find a way. Use your life groups. Find a way to reach out. Find a way to fish. So we're going to have communion this morning. And I think it's very appropriate that we have communion as we have talked about doing this together. So I'd like to ask those who are going to help serve. Again, we have the two stations here on each side. Uh, and, um, and you'll come up and just uh, get the elements of the, of the um, communion. And then you can go back to your seat. And we're not going to take it all together. You can take it when you get back to your seat just with your family or those that you're with. And so we're going to do communion that way. But I, I, I want you to think about why we do communion. Think about, God, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to us? How do we do life as your disciples? How can I live this out? And it's going to be different for each person. Let's go back to Ephesians 2, or uh, Philippians 2. We are not trying to be equal to each other. We're not trying to compare ourselves with somebody else. All that you're called to do is obey what Jesus gives you to do. That's all. He's not asking you to do what Mike Nieder is doing. He's not asking you to do what Steve Pope is doing. He's just asking you to do what he gives you to do. And that's a wonderful freedom. So as you, as you take communion, just thank him for his presence with us. The Spirit is here with us. And then, um, and then ask him, what are some ways? And, and obviously, this isn't a question that we can just ask here. We need to ask this through the week, and we need to ask this as we go forward. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he guides us into truth, and he leads us, and he helps us. So let's pray as we begin and then just come. Father, we thank you for the calling that you have put on our lives 
to be your disciples. You said, come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And Lord, we want to be faithful in that. We confess to you at times we don't know what that means. Uh, how to do that. But God, we ask you to reveal that to us. We thank you, Father, for your presence here, for the Spirit of God that is at work. And we just come now to you in gratitude, Lord, as we remember all that Jesus has done for us. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this last song. And again, feel free to come and grab the elements as you feel led.